Today's the Adam Ragusea podcast, episode 31, coming to you from somewhere in Michigan, where I am with Dr. Mike Isratel of Renaissance Periodization, and we are going to talk about uh, protein eating, protein timing, protein quantity, protein sources, human, non-human, right? Excellent, okay. yes. Uh, everybody knows that human meat is the most anabolic, but you know, check the local laws in your jurisdiction. Transylvania, you're fine. Sure, right. Um, doctor Mike, first of all, what, what kind of doctor are you really? I'm not a real doctor. I'm a sport physiologist, which means I'm supposed to be educated in taking good athletes and making them better. Well, uh, you took an athlete today and made him the best. The best, yes. So I just shot a workout. Uh, we did a training video for RP's YouTube channel. That video will be linked in the description if you're watching this on YouTube or in the show notes if you're listening to the pod. And you can see me totally embarrass myself as Dr. Mike reams my little behind. Boy, oh boy, that could be taken a different way. I think you did great. Thank you. But I tell everyone that when I ream their behind. You say that to all the ladies. <laughs> we'll say ladies, yes. Um, so... Protein. I've always heard one gram of protein per day per pound of body weight, which is mixing metric and imperial, and I don't know why we do that. Um, but you guys have Google at home. You can figure out what that is in your local system. The one, pound, the one gram per pound of body weight, is that a good enough guide in your opinion? Yes. It slightly overshoots the need for most, but by overshooting by a small margin, you make sure to not ever really risk taking in too little. A tiny bit more than you need poses essentially zero downsides for health or anything else. And it also covers your basis for both muscle gaining and fat loss to keep the muscle on the body. And if you get a little bit more protein than you quote unquote need, it just gets used for energy and other stuff. So uh, it's no big deal. But for those of us who are trying to be leaner, Excess protein means excess calories, which is still bad, right? If you don't count up your daily calories and you just do macros individually, definitely bad. So any extra protein you eat, you'll have to make room for in your carbs or in your fats. So going much over a gram per pound is a bad idea. Gram and a half, two grams per pound per day, you're just missing out on a lot of carbs and fats that could make you fuller, make your hormonal profile better, make your training energy higher. So it's definitely not as much protein as possible. That's for sure bad but up to about a gram per pound, and in some very nuanced contexts, a little bit more than that, is gonna cover almost all of your bases. You can eat significantly less and get away with it, and that's totally cool, but if you know what you're doing. I don't, so Neither bookmark way. that. Yeah, yeah. but uh, so, but it's per pound of lean body weight, right? Just no? body weight, yeah. Really, so even, I mean, even a person who is like significantly obese, they weigh 400 pounds, most of it is adipose tissue. You would tell them to have one gram of protein per pound of that body weight? I could, and it would still be safe and it would still be very effective. If you wanted to get nitty gritty with them, you could say, well, you know, you should really go more towards like a lean mass target. However, protein tends to be relative to most other foods, a pretty satiating macronutrient. You can only eat so much especially lean protein until you're like, bah. So a lot of times folks that are very overfat. The way you get overfat is almost always and almost everywhere just eating too much tasty food. And so if you tell folks like that to eat still a gram per pound, you could tell them to eat less and it's totally fine. But if you tell them to eat about a gram per pound, they can 
turn their eating into a bit more of a difficult task, which means they can't eat as much, which means you get this really serendipitous thing of they're for sure getting enough protein and it's kind of filling them up so much they can't eat too much more than that and they end up eating at their calorie goal, losing weight, everyone's happy, and, and the world and the sun smile upon us all. This is a message that you hit pretty frequently, which is that if, if you're very overweight yourself or if you have someone that you love who's very overweight, forget the whole like trying to reduce calories or you know changing the lifestyle dramatically or whatever just say just stop eating the junk right just stop eating the empty calorie dorito type foods and even if you tell them look eat as much as you want just of the other stuff it's really really hard to maintain an incredibly high level of adiposity while eating like fruits and vegetables and meats like it's nearly impossible i don't know if anyone's ever done it to be completely honest have you ever seen the show My 600 Pound Life by any chance? Uh, I've seen the, pro the promotional spots. Good enough. In all those episodes, you get a bit of a taste, pun intended, right. of what folks are eating typically before they get on their weight loss diet. And these are individuals that weigh in excess of 600 pounds and they're candidates for bariatric surgery. I've never single, never in a single episode I've ever seen anyone eat remotely healthy foods. It's all junk, 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 junk. And that's really the only way you can put it down. From another perspective, competitive bodybuilders like myself who try to gain weight on purpose, but are trying to attend to our health and eating high quality foods because it's better for performance and better for results. We eat at a caloric surplus to try to gain weight, but so much food that, uh, you know, it's healthy food. And then it ends up being preposterously difficult to do. We'll have some junk on occasion just to bump the calories up. If you take it from the other perspective, most of your food is junk or a lot of it is junk. If you just try to do a calorie cutting diet, you're gonna get hungry, cranky, miserable. But if you just change your eating to more healthy foods, fruits, veggies, whole grains, lean proteins, healthy fats like nut butter, olive oil, etc., and limit your junk to like as little as possible, maybe here and there on occasion, but ideally not much or not, not at all, you're gonna find that you're super full, have super tons of energy, and you're just losing weight week upon week upon week fast because the only way to maintain a 400 pound body in almost every case is to eat tons of junk. And if you just take the junk out, replace with healthy food, it's gonna be a super easy way to at least start your fitness journey. So uh, back to the protein. I, I weigh 200 pounds, not entirely lean. Lean uh, enough. <laughs> uh, if I'm eating 200 grams of protein a day, can I have it all at one time? I kind of want to have it all at one time sometimes. Just mix a bunch of protein powder together and eat it with a spoon, like a jello, like a pudding. That is not my plan for those oh. 200 grams. Oops, that's my yeah. plan. Uh, you could have it all at one time and it would help you recover and help you grow muscle but it wouldn't work nearly as well as if you had it over two servings. And that wouldn't work nearly as well as if you had it over three and you keep chopping it up and spreading out somewhere around four or five, roughly evenly spaced, roughly equivalent doses of protein. So 40 to 50 grams in your case per meal, four or five times per day. After that, six or seven or eight times doesn't seem to offer any sort of benefit that we can detect at recent research. And most bodybuilders who have tried eating eight times a day, tried four times a day, they can't really tell a difference either. So I would say four or five, especially for most folks watching, four evenly spaced protein meals per day is awesome. About as good as it gets for putting on muscle, keeping a high daily energy, retaining muscle on a diet. But I'd say three times a day, you're doing okay. You could do a little better by eating four. Twice a day, it'll work, but not for optimum results. Once a day is, gee, it was just really not the best use of your protein. 
Well, what, what goes wrong when you have it all in one sitting, as I may or may not be doing tomorrow back in Detroit at a certain establishment? Um, <laughs> uh, it, does it just, will the protein end up going to, to body fat rather than building muscle? Is that the danger? Mm. Protein is rarely used for body fat, but it will be used for just energy. It'll be used for energy, and then the carbs, the, the, the baked potato that I have with my steak, will go to body fat. Correct. Okay. And the fat you eat will definitely go to fat. And the real problem is all that really ends up in the wash because you'll have a time during the day when you're eating not much of anything, and then you'll burn all that fat off. But instead of some large fraction of 40 grams every five hours going to feed and maintain your muscle mass, maybe only 60 or 70 grams out of that 201 meal will go to that. Huh. And then the rest of the 130, 40 grams will just go to be burned off as energy. The total amount of protein burned off as energy if you eat protein once a day is like at least half of it, probably like two thirds. But if you sum it up over multiple meals, it could be a very small fraction, maybe like 25 or 30%. That's a big difference. That's a lot of protein that could be sparing muscle, could be building muscle, just going out of the wash and being burned. Not ideal. I mean, the, the conventional wisdom states that the body has no protein storage mechanism like it has a fat storage mechanism. As I understand it, that's not totally true, right? Like we've got free amino acids running through our system, we got stuff in our liver, we got all kinds of things, right? Free amino acid pool is profoundly small. Oh, okay, don't call speaking. me that. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I meant it. Uh, technically speaking, if you want to get real nitty gritty, skeletal muscle can function as a reservoir of protein. I think we'd rather not consider it as such. Exactly. And as you kind of like spend a lot of time building it, you don't necessarily want to break it down. Uh, so it turns out that versus saying we do or not have a reservoir for some macronutrients, it's probably better to think of it as how big and how easy access of a reservoir do we have. Fat, enormous, super easy access. Carbs, decent, really easy access. Protein, difficult to access. The reservoir itself, if we, other than skeletal muscle, if we say skeletal muscle is not a reservoir, barely have anything. So in the short term, if your body doesn't have fat floating around, it gets it out of the fat tissue, no harm, no foul. Uh, if you don't have amino acids floating around in sufficient concentrations, gee whiz, you know, your body just kind of starts looking at the muscle. And you know when the, in, in the old cartoons when you look at a chicken that's squawking around and yeah, you yeah. just see it as the cooked chicken outline, oh, yeah. it starts to do that to your muscle and quickly gets to burning it off. Yeah. Your body cares to keep muscle on your body, but it doesn't care that much because you especially, so for example, compared to your ancestors who evolved into you, um, you already have excess muscle mass by a long shot. And so relative to your natural sort of titration, uh, your body's like, hey, Adam's plenty jacked. If I go about 30 minutes without enough protein, I'm gonna start peeling it out of his legs, biceps, everything, to do what? To feed organs like the brain, the heart, the digestive tract. Way more important that those things get protein because they keep you, well, you know, alive and functioning. So your body doesn't prioritize skeletal muscle much, which means that if you don't give it relatively regular protein feedings of enough concentration, it'll just be like, yeah, 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 skeletal muscle. Step in here and do something about this. Donate your protein. And if you care about being a little bit more jacked, you have to attend to that by regularly feeding your body protein to prevent that from happening. So, you know, uh, I suppose I sometimes think of protein purely as being this raw building block material of skeletal muscle. But what you're saying is that it's like, you know, all the organs, the brain, all of that, they need amino acids to make proteins that do other jobs other than being muscle, right? Absolutely. And something like your digestive tract 
has a consumption of amino acid that's way higher and faster. It just takes more of your protein than muscle does. Your skin, I mean, you slough off tons of skin all the time. That's a huge protein content. You don't slough off skeletal muscle all the time. Technically you do, there's a turnover, but geez, turnover rate for the cells inside your gut is insanely high. Skin, insanely high. That's where most of your body's protein ends up going. Skeletal muscle beyond a certain point is kind of like a luxury and your body treats it as such. You know, if the economy takes a dive, you're not gonna say, well, I have to have my top hat and my dirigible. You might just keep your prized horse and your stable at that point and sell the dirigible. But if something is considered essential, like your heart, your brain, digestive tract, your body will take and give protein to those things quickly and skeletal muscle gets kicked out to the curb, you know, with peg leg and a little tiny hat and it goes and begs for money in the street, in the 1920s, of course. Uh, so with my monocle firmly in place, as it will stay, uh, it's the last thing that's gonna go, I will ask. Uh, so I imagine that like the math gets more complicated, more sensitive, harder as you get to like, as you would say, exotic levels of leanness that someone like myself will never achieve. Oh where like you're really having to trick your body into retaining muscle when it really would rather you spend muscle instead of fat, right? Sure. i say the math stays uh, pretty straightforward. You may need a little bit more protein, like 1.1 or 1.2 grams per pound if you get very, very lean. Um, in addition to that, you just need to make sure you're training consistently to give your body the messaging that like, hey, keep this around because Tissues will keep various amounts of themselves around based on the signaling they receive. Your heart and lungs and digestive tract are always like, give me protein, give me protein, give me protein. And if you just leave your muscle there and you don't work out, the muscle's like, I don't need this. But if you consistently stimulate it several times a week per muscle, enough sets, etc., you get nice and tired during your workouts, then you're going to be in a situation where the muscle's like, no, 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 I need this, please keep it here. And then it maintains its level. So plenty of protein around the clock, consistent resistance training, and of course, as much sleep as possible and a low a stress environment as possible. Yeah. You lost me there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah we lose most. Why can't we just eat protein? If the body is able to utilize protein as an energy source, does it break, the, does it break them down into actually, does it end up as glucose in the end? Like how does it actually metabolize uh, uh, amino acids into, into energy? So there's a couple processes through I which like, that- I like complexity, hit me. Yeah, so uh, there are some amino acids can be uh, essentially broken apart and inserted at various parts of the energy manufacture process. Some of them uh, can actually function a little bit like glucose. They're inserted at various parts during glycolysis. Some of them are no good for that and they're inserted in various subcomponents during the Krebs cycle. So it ends up being like it gets used somewhere but not all in the exact same place and it really does depend on the amino acid. So it's all like where can we throw it in? How can we modify it beforehand? Now, that modification, it costs some energy. Hello, Fly. Hello, Fly. Bye-bye. That modification costs some energy. It is a little difficult to do. Your body prefers not to do it. So your body, if it has proteins, carbs, and fats in the same meal, generally won't use protein for a lot of energy. Um, it'll use carbohydrates and fats, which are much more readily. Just carbs go into that whole process all the way through. Proteins are used. They need to be modified first. They are inserted at various parts of that process. Uh, sometimes they don't yield as much energy uh, and uh, all that stuff. So ideally, your body will use carbs and fats. If you have protein around and not much else around, or if you're starving 
and your muscle gets pulled out or protein gets pulled out of muscle, then it gets reinserted into other cells pathways at those various junctures to do a good enough job. Okay. Sometimes when that happens, it converted to ketones first and all this other stuff, it can get quite complex. Okay, but if I can run the car on protein, why not just be safe and only run the car on protein and like a multivitamin to you know, not get a sailor disease? Yeah, safe from what? Uh, I, I would like to be as jacked as possible. I guess. So being jacked as possible is like going as fast as possible in your car. You're not running with the highest quality fuel if mm. you're trying to use protein for the same stuff that you're trying to use uh, ideally with carbohydrates. So carbohydrates fuel your performance better than protein does. They actually let you train harder in the gym. They recover you from gym training better than protein does for later gym training that day. They give you more daily energy for tasks, which also means your daily step count will be higher or easier to achieve if you cap your step count with a step tracker or something. Car carbohydrates are better for your brain. They let you think more clearly. And if you go on a low-carb diet, you clearly oh, right away decide yeah. that, oh, I don't even know what my name is. Yeah. Uh, so if you just try to excise carbohydrates completely, you'll certainly have enough protein for all the good functions that it has. But another thing carbohydrates are good for is anti-catabolism. They actually prevent protein breakdown uh, in their own presence, and they do all those other great things. So if you're looking at sort of marginal utility, up to a certain point, more protein is better. Up to a point beyond a gram per pound, more protein is about neutral. Shortly thereafter, it's negative relative to having to reduce the carbs. Having as many carbs as you can once you've filled your protein is great until they impinge on having an essential amount of fat. So really the best way to diet for performance, body composition, whatever, is to have a balance of enough protein, enough carbs, and enough fats to sort of do all the things you want to do. Just going and saying, well, I just want one macronutrient, I just want one thing. I don't know, it's kind of like putting a really crappy fuel into a race car. It will go around the track. You're just not going to be setting any records. Wise words. I hope everyone is listening. And they could listen even more comfortably with uh, earbuds from Raycon, sponsor of this episode. Let me tell you about Raycon for a second. I, I'm a sound person. I, the devotees know that I, I came, I was a music major in college and I taught, uh, taught like advanced audio production and at school for a really, really long time. And let me tell you, these headphones really do the business as far as I'm concerned in terms of sounding really good. But the other thing I like about them is that they are good for my piddling little workouts. They stay in my ears, they don't fall out. That's the worst thing because they, they come, the everyday earbuds from Raycon come with like a bunch of options for those soft little silicone tips that just slide right in. You get one that's a nice fit, a nice seal, and it's absolutely fantastic. They don't fall out, absolutely love them. Hey holidays are coming up kids speaking of kids I got we got our kid uh, uh, some gamer headphones from Raycon and like he was just over the moon and he wore them for Halloween he was like a YouTube gamer that was his costume for Halloween and, and it's funny him like coming up to older folks to trick-or-treat they were like oh and what are you and he's like I'm a gamer and you could tell in their their the gears in their head were kind of like that's 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 a thing the kids want to be these days and the answer is yes madam yes that's what all the kids want to be and there's nothing wrong with that forever people have watched people play sports recreationally other people play sports it makes it's a perfectly logical leap to watch other people play video games if video games are what you're interested in and let's not shame people for being into what they're into anyway raycon so uh holidays are coming up gift giving get in on it early raycon has bundles going out on their website 30 percent 
50% off for these bundles. Might I suggest the athlete bundle, which comes with the headphones, uh, the earbuds, which are really great for exercise, and at the same time, it comes with the, the, uh, this like little belt situation where you can put the little magnetic charging station thing for the, the earbuds, and you can put your wallet, your phone, your keys, all that kind of good stuff, and it somehow doesn't look like a fanny pack, like you look respectable wearing the, the belt with the athlete bundle. Go ahead and hit my link in the description, which is buyraycon.com slash show. buyraycon.com slash show. And what you're going to do is you're going to do the, uh, the code, which is earlybf, earlybf, and you will get 20% off site-wide at Raycon. And if you want to save 30%, check out the product bundles, like the athlete. Highly recommend. Buyraycon.com slash show. Uh, use the code EARLYBF for 20% off anything site-wide, and then go to the bundles for 30% off. Thank you, Raycon. So, Dr. Mike, if that is your real name. It is. It is, yeah, it's, it's right. It's just, I, I taught journalism for years and years, and so like, I still have res residual associated press style in me that says, never refer to a non-physician as doctor. Interesting. But, yes, that's their thing. Huh. And let me tell you, I've heard about it from a lot of non-physician doctors over the years who were very upset about that. Excellent. Well, yeah. I, I can also call me Professor Mike okay. because I am a professor, uh, or just Mike. What's up, Teach? What up? Teach. Yo, what up, fam? Okay. So I, I, I've, I've watched your channel for a long time. Uh, people, seriously, if you like me, even if you're not that interested in like exercise physiology or diet or anything like that, like check out Renaissance Periodization. It's all Dr. Mike. He's just, he's, he's like me, but smarter and funnier and jacked um, You're, you're going to love him. Uh, oh, most of that's not true. I have like a whole bunch of totally random ideas I've wanted. I've like screamed at the, the screen while watching the Let's RP channel. And what I just want to like scream them at you. Yes, please. And it's kind of in the model of like, um, what this theory presupposes is X. That's a really deep joke for like five people, but anywho's okay. So what my theory presupposes is um, professional bodybuilders, like the guys who are the best in the world, right? Mm. They don't do full range of motion. Sometimes, yeah. You are a big proponent of full range of motion, which for people who don't know, it means like whatever the exercise is, whatever the movement it is, you go all the way through the entire range of motion that is available to you in your joints, right? You go all the way up and all the way down or whatever the hell it is, right? To a man, the top guys tend to usually do like the middle 50% of the range of motion. And my, what my theory presupposes is maybe they are great in spite of that. Right, mm -hmm. but could they be great because of it? Is there some yet as yet unidentified mechanism that might be advantageous to that kind of bodybuilding if you only do the middle 50% of the rep? No. Shit. Yeah, but I have thought of that before. I bet you have. A few times. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is the thing about exercising. I've talked about this, that it's like, it's fundamentally really boring. And if you're smart, you've got like a lot of brain space available yes. while you're doing the, the, rep the repetitions as it were, right? And so I bet your, your little gears are turning. Lots to think about. Yeah. yeah. No, there's, I mean, there could are. It, could it maybe like build the middle of the muscle belly and thus make the muscle belly protrude more? Maybe. Direct investigations into that have not yielded those sorts of results. Has someone's directly investigated that? That seems like the most useless thing for a scientist to investigate. I think my entire field is pretty useless. So yes, absolutely they have. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't pan out. Now, there may be studies in the future which can elucidate a mechanism that's advantaged, although we can do a little philosophical thing where we go back and sort of 
maybe ask the bodybuilders why they do that or try to ascertain why they do that. And the reality is they are men on considerable amounts of exogenous testosterone. Mm. They are ego-driven. They like to lift heavy. And that range of motion allows them to lift really heavy and feel good about themselves. If they did a more full range of motion, they would have to reduce the weight and incur quite a bit more pain during the movement itself because a deep stretch under heavy loads is difficult, more difficult. Maybe it saves their joints. It leads to longevity in their career, right? Could hypothesize that. But then we would have to contend with the idea that folks that lift through a middle range of motion in order to make it challenging for a given number of reps, let's say a set of 10, they actually have to use considerable more weight and that ends up being much worse for their joints. When you lift with a full range of motion, it actually tends to strengthen the joints more while simultaneously not providing the kind of insane external forces to them that have put you at a higher risk of injury. So if you're squatting 50% of the way down and something goes wrong, you're getting hurt. If you're squatting all the way down, there's not a whole lot that you haven't exposed your tissues to that can really surprise you. So it turns out it's actually worse for the joints to go through a partial range of motion than wow. through a full range of motion. Though they will tell you that they do it to save the joints, but a lot of them just don't even exercise properly to begin with. Their technique is so bad that, uh, that they're not qualified to be saying what, and what, what does and does not feel good for the joints. But surely there's just things that science doesn't know about these dudes, because they're so rare. They're, they're unicorns. They're genetic unicorns, right? And they're on way more drugs than like almost anyone who gets studied by real scientists is on. Because like when you guys do these studies, mostly you're like studying like undergraduate, you know, totally. boys, right? I mean, and girls, right? Like, um, you know, like norm normals, you're studying normals. The normals as we Maybe call them. Maybe everything changes when you're, when you're blasting trend or whatever they, yes. they do. Yes, so uh, I'm in that world myself. I have trained with many pro bodybuilders. One of the um, people that works for our company, Renaissance Periodization, is himself a competitive, active IFBB pro. He Jared. Jared Feather. Yeah. He trains a lot of IFBB pros. Um, I have become more muscular than at least some fraction of IFBB pros, or muscularity-wise, I'm well in the mix. And having lived that experience myself and having coached other pros and taught them to train with a full range of motion, they nearly universally report much better results and much lower injury risk and much less total fatigue and a perception that their growth rates are better. So I'd have also trained with partial range of motions myself and so has Jared and it just works worse and all of the literature confirms that it should work worse. So to us, there's really not much to discover. When people who are really, really good at bodybuilding switch to a more full range of motion, they typically experience an improvement in their abilities. At least two bodybuilders come to mind. One, Big Rami, uh, who's currently Mr. Olympia, mm -hmm. trains mostly with full ranges of motion and nobody can touch him muscularly. To have that person who's the best train with a full range of motion, that's pretty good. Not worth a ton, but worth something. Then another example is Nick Walker. Nick Walker's a top five Olympian. He used to train with very partial ranges of motion. And then when he began working with uh, Matt Jansen, a famous bodybuilding coach, Matt had him expand his range of motion considerably. And Nick just gained a crap load of muscle mass and just never really got hurt. So he was able to do more to his muscles with a fraction of the weight he used to use. Gee whiz, you know, we're seeing this transformation slowly. There's other folks like John Jewett, IFBB Pro, mm -hmm. who train with a full range of motion, many others. The idea that the top guys don't train with full range of motion used to be more true in the 90s. It has incrementally since then becoming less and less true. So you, you think that Ronnie Coleman could have been bigger than Ronnie Coleman? 
had he not trained with a lot of momentum and short range of motion and all that kind of stuff. Yes, absolutely. It's hard to imagine any, any human surpassing. It's, it's not hard at all. Big Rami is bigger than Ronnie Coleman. Not, not at the same level of leanness, right? At exactly the same level of leanness. All right. Okay, so that's- He's just better. Well, that's, well, that's see, that, there you go. So there, there's an interesting question. So like, um, if, if your theory presupposes that like competition Big Rami and competition Big Ron have basically the same kind of compo you know, body composition, subcutaneous water or lack thereof and all that kind of stuff, Big Ron's muscles still popped way more than like Rami's ever do. Is that, is that pure genetics? It's just the shape of the actual muscle itself that you're born with. They either kind of protrude in a Phil Heath-ish manner, or they just kind of sit flat in say a, uh, uh, who's, who's really big but doesn't have good definition. Uh, Steve Kuklo, right? Like that guy, I mean, that guy, look, that guy's amazing, right? He's like huge, super lean, and he, he doesn't, he kind of doesn't look that muscular in a weird way. It's just sort of like, flat in a way that like Phil Heath's muscles are just like somebody blew, blew it up like a balloon like they're making Peking duck. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So genetics is definitely a huge factor. I will say Big Rami has some of the roundest muscles I've ever seen on a human being and his overall shape is better than Ronnie Coleman's. Can't deny that. Yes. Yeah. And so Ronnie did have a profound amount of vascularity mm. which just really looks gnarly when you get lean. Big Rami does not have as much vascularity. Somebody like Jay Cutler had almost no vascularity, if you think about it. But he had those feathers in his quads, which... He did have the feathers. And that's purely genetic, right? If you get lean enough, yes. Right. Yeah, now most people can get quad feathering if they get lean. Phil Heath couldn't. That guy had no... Yeah. No, not a gram of body fat on that guy's body and no feathers in his yeah, quads. Just about everything else was feathered. Yeah, so yeah. He, he won a few Olympias in his yeah, day. Yeah, but yeah, the, uh, the muscle shape thing is really not something we have a huge influence over our abilities as individuals is to get as big and as lean as possible. The muscle shape kind of does its own thing. Huh. Yeah. Um, speaking of Phil Heath, so um, most bodybuilders as they get older and they, uh, as they, there's, there's, there's no second part to that statement. Most bodybuilders as they get older, um, their midsections tend to grow, right? And there's a lot of people, there's a lot, it seems to be a lot of mystery around what the mechanism of that is. It seems odd to me that this could be mysterious, like like just throw throw an ultrasound on them and just see what that tissue is. Like, do you have any idea? Why, why does the midsection grow as the bodybuilder ages? Humans store increasingly more intra-abdominal fat as they age. Generally speaking, as you age in bodybuilding, also your organs tend to grow because you're subjecting them to very high volumes of drugs that are designed to make organs grow. Yeah. So that combination of uh, typically people's waists expand as they age anyway from intra-abdominal fat and organ growth and add to that years of heavy training and years of profound drug use yeah. and you tend to get an expansion of, of the gut that looks like it looks. Uh, and now also it's scaled to how big the individual is. People say, you know, Arnold had a very slim waist and that's very true. But it's wide. People, sure, he, he did the angles well. Yeah. The people who are roughly Arnold's size now, like Chris Bumstead, for example, mm. have even more tapered waists than yeah. Arnold had. And so when people say, well, how come Phil Heath's tummy is so big? Well, the rest of him is just straight up obnoxious. Yeah. So it's uh, a lot of that organ growth has to happen because of how much food he's eating to yeah. get that big. 
So a lot of that's not so much a mystery. It's just you eat tons of food, you take tons of drugs, and as you get older, you tend to store more intra-abdominal fat. So, so a guy who is that lean, who has competition levels of lean, will still have like vis visceral fat and stuff like Some that? Some level, absolutely. Why, what is that for? What does is, what is the body store that for? Uh, to keep your organs fed and keep you upright. Huh. Yeah, it's probably one of the last sources of fat to go, and if that goes completely, you're probably dead. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, see, this is what I had wondered, because like, you know, everybody notices it in terms of bodybuilders, but what my theory presupposes is that the reason people notice it is just that guys are competing way longer than they used to, and so they're just older up there, and maybe all of our midsections grow as we get older. You just kind of can't tell in most people, because most of us just get fat, and you just chalk it up to getting a gut, but it's actually not. It's, I mean, it is that, but it's also stuff on the inside. Yes, I think you're completely correct. I think your take is a very rare take and it's probably going to be the most true take that most people see about this. It actually is very enlightening that you came to this yourself. Oh, this feels so good. Yes. I feel so validated. Yes, and that's something that people just fail to compare. So most bodybuilders in the 70s and 80s were tired in their mid to late 20s. Yeah. And gee whiz, you know, you can look, there's tons of TikTok kids that do quote unquote bodybuilding. You're 17, 18 years old. They don't even have a waist barely. Yeah, and as, as an adult man, you begin to develop a waist and that continues on into your old, later years. And that's just something that happens with aging. And I think that's just what's happening is most of the people that win the Mr. Olympia now, they're in their late 30s or early 40s. Just because right? they're expected to be bigger and that's how long it takes it to get that big? It just takes that long to get that big and that lean. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's just too, you know, if you're 25 and you hit the Olympia stage, you may be 60 pounds under muscled to do anything about it. Yeah. And uh, it's just older men are winning and that's the look that is a result of that. Speaking of age, there's this uh, concept that they call uh, muscle maturity. Um, it is often described as kind of a muscle texture, or they call it like a grainy texture that is usually only visible in like really high def, you know, photos and videos if you, if you don't see any of these guys in person. Um, and it is often attributed to kind of heavy, hard, heavy training. Years of hard, heavy training builds that graininess, that, that, that muscle maturity. What my theory presupposes is it's actually skin maturity. Our skin is just aging. It gets less elastic and less thick as we get older. And it just sort of hugs the muscle differently as we get older. Thoughts? React. React emoji. Mm. Um, I don't know if muscle maturity is even a thing. Mm. My presupposition undercuts all of that and ask the question of, are we attributing mechanism to a phenomenon that has not been evidentiarily established? <laughs> uh, certainly, your hypothesis sounds very interesting, but also I think over time, bodybuilders just are able to get leaner, mm. and that is the big change to the look. A little baby-faced, fat-faced, 22-year-old bodybuilder with sort of defined glutes, muscles are going to look a certain way peeled to the bone 35 year old gnarly guy muscles will look a different way but i think that's mostly a function of body fat one thing that you do tend to notice is every time you get really lean getting that lean and leaner becomes easier in the future just by really? a smart yeah just by a slight margin you add that up over a 10-year competitive career guys can get shredded like they never were. Do you think that's something physiological or is it just like practice and learning what, what protocols, what, what drug cocktails, all that kind of stuff, what work? Probably both. So your settling point for kind of where your body feels like it's okay 
if you get lean and don't get super fat after and get lean again and don't get super fat after, it can change probably to get lower and lower. So your body, you know, used to be at 15% body fat, anything lower, it started to freak out. Then later 12%, then later 10%, it felt totally fine. Yeah. And because you have that starting point that's leaner and leaner, you're able to use the 12 or 14 or 16 weeks of a diet to get to a lower point every time, you know, start sooner, finish further ahead. So there's definitely something to that. And um, there's something, of course, to the practice of it. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, your diet will shock you the first time you do it to get yeah. stage lean. The second yeah. time you do it, you're like, yeah, I've been here before. The third time, you're like, oh, this is easy. <laughs> uh, actually, as of the filming of this video, Jared Feather is peaking for one of his shows he's got. And he said they did a very low stress prep. And he was like, this is, it, got, it just was just not that hard to get super lean. Wow. And uh, yeah, the first time I ever got stranded glutes on stage, I did like a 22 week diet or something preposterous. Yeah. The second time I got glute striations after 10 weeks of dieting and I was like, okay, here we go. It's all bonus round from here. <laughs> so it does get psychologically easier, but I think there's almost certainly a physiological underpinning sure. because you don't feel as psychologically competent as your body reveals. It's not like, oh, this is super easy. Uh, just keep going like this and it'll get hard and I'll get lean. It just never really gets that hard and you're already super lean. You start to think, well, I'm not this good at dieting. Something's happening that's not just in my mind or in my actions. It's something in the physiology. Don't we all know about that? It's just so easy to get so lean. With, with many years of hard practice. Yes, exactly. Then it's the easy part. Yes, I, uh, I don't have the practice, but uh, you know, when I, when I wanna try to not eat a big nasty breakfast, at least uh, I usually reach for coffee. Uh, which brings us to the other sponsor of today's episode, Trade Coffee, my source for all of my coffee. Love trade coffee. Devotees know that I, I was not a coffee drinker for much of my life. It was just, it's an acquired taste that I just never put forward the effort to acquire. And then I, I, I hooked up with trade and the thing about trade is like, you don't have to know what you like. You don't have to be confident in anything about your, your coffee buying habits. They'll just find delicious, wonderful stuff for you. And, and one of the things that I really like about them is that it's not like a thing where they're like buying surplus coffee and then just you know putting it in a fancy bag and then sending it to you and telling you that it's really good. What they do is they partner with like local independent roasters all over. They work with them. They have a whole team of tasters at trade that taste stuff and looks for stuff that is really good. And then they match it to your preferences. And if you don't know what your preferences are, that's fine. You just tell them or surprise me and they'll surprise you. They start sending these delightful biodegradable uh, compostable uh, red bags full of coffee to your house, full of things that will delight you. And from that, I was able to learn that I, I really like lighter roasts, which I always eschewed earlier in my life because I have a bunch of like messed up toxic masculinity in my head that told me that like light means weak bad, you're not, you're not drinking the real stuff, Ragusea, right? And then I found out that, oh, no, 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 actually, like, it's, that's like thinking that, like, a well-done steak is the better steak, is, like, the more hardcore steak. I mean, no offense if you like well-done steak or really, really dark roasted coffee. I mean, you do you. All I'm saying is that it's like a lighter roast is equivalent to kind of the rarer steak. Uh, you can taste more of the product underlying. And, uh, you know, the strength is up to you. Strength is in how you brew it. And let me tell you, I brew strong cups of coffee. 
so uh, if you're interested in, uh, in my tastes of coffee, maybe seeing what I like, I like sort of these brighter, more acidic roasts. I actually have a coffee playlist at Trade that you can check out, Adam's Tart Faves. You could just subscribe to my playlist if you wanted to, all kinds of wonderful stuff in there. Or you could tell them that, hey, you know, I, I like Adam's programs, but I don't like his taste in coffee. I like dark roasted stuff, and uh, they'll, they'll send you a ton of that as well. Just go to drinktrade.com slash adamshow, drinktrade.com slash adamshow, and you can save $30 on your subscription at drinktrade.com slash adamshow to save $30 on your subscription. Get yourself some of the best coffees in the country, uh, roasted fresh, delivered right to your door. It's good times. Be well. Thank you, Trade. That was really good. Thank you. I'm a professional. You're a very excellent product endorser. Well, this is, where, this is where things get dicey. This is where I get political. So I love it. I have noticed anecdotally that like a disproportionate number of bodybuilders and other kind of strength and fitness athletes um, will tell you that they are, they are politically libertarian. And you, you have in fact talked about your libertarianism briefly on the channel. It's not a big thing for you, you know. Um, so what my theory presupposes is there's two, two chief explanations for this tendency. One is real obvious, which is that you guys want to take anabolic steroids and it's annoying that the nanny state deprives you of the ability to purchase these things at your leisure in most jurisdictions. That one's obvious, right? Doesn't even need a comment. Truth, right? Uh, I don't know if that's true. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Most people don't reason in a grand political level uh, <laughs> when they're talking about individual choices. Okay, I think sure. most people are perfectly uh, comfortable breaking laws like that. Uh, so, for example, well, if, you're if comfortable you're, with it, but it's still a pain in the ass to like try to find the stuff. I imagine, right, and yeah. verify that it's real and all yes. that kind of stuff. Yes, you, you could also be an individual who thinks that uh, drug legalization should occur. And then that would actually put you square into the political left, which seeks to decriminalize most drugs. Oh, it's a circle. It meets in the back end, right? The shape of the political distribution is a, is a very long conversation. Oh, okay. But I will say that we could suppose that libertarians definitely uh, make sense that they would be pro-drug. And if you want to be pro-drug, libertarian is a choice you could make. Hmm. But then we have to explain why they're not making the choice to be an extreme leftist, because hmm. they would also subsume that idea that drugs should be legal. Right. And it's also way more popular of a view. Sure. Libertarian is a very niche. Uh, most people are either pretty far to the right or, well, most people are marginally to the right and marginally to the left. Libertarianism is this weird little agglomeration. Right. Well, here's where I hit you with part B of my hypothesis. There we go. Okay. Um, or it's a distinct, maybe it's hypothesis number two. Index it however you would like. At home. At home. Yes. On your uh, notepad. Yes. <laughs> so, um, I would guess that the experience of radically transforming your body, making yourself look like a completely different fucking person, right? Mm -hmm. Fills you with a feeling of power that you can control your own destiny and that therefore everybody else can and should control their own destiny and therefore the state should not intervene to balance the scales of justice and redistribute wealth and all that kind of stuff because we are in fact actually in control of ourselves and such and that's how my experience changing my body made me feel i think you're much closer with that one in my personal assessment who knows what the real truth is i think there's a lot of validity to that 
I have a third option if you're interested in considering it. Okay. It is not politically correct. It may fall on very angered ears. Okay. But it's nonetheless the, my best thought on, on the subject. I think... Safe space? Uh, great. Yeah. We'll see how YouTube takes that one. Uh, so I think that it's similar to your second hypothesis there. I think that people who have experience in changing their bodies for the better, and we'll say... I guess I should have specified that, yes, exactly. You don't feel super empowered if you change your body for the worst. For sure, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, and people in fitness and stuff yeah. like that, especially people who have trained other people before, mm. they tend to make two observations, I, I believe. Yes. One is that if you bring only a desire to change, you can move worlds and that uh, it seems like environmental circumstances just don't matter a whole lot. Rocky Balboa got in amazing boxing shape with nothing but Philadelphia 1976 level of poverty. Mm -hmm. Certainly most of us, almost all Americans. And he was a real person too. <laughs> right, yes, so that mythical entity. Now, oh. there are real people like that. Yeah. I've actually trained in martial arts gyms in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it doesn't seem that when you uh, are in the fitness space that wealth or privilege in any way seems to be a really big lever to pull to boost your results. At the end of the day, the way you have results is you show up, work hard, and don't eat junk. Gee, you know, actually you need zero money for about all of those, if in a certain context. So people at least make the observation that bringing your own desire and drive is a huge factor for success, the individual's desire and drive. Yeah. The second thing they tend to notice is that genetics are a huge influence on outcome. And that if somebody has a really great genetics and they have a really good desire and drive, societal variables extraneous to those seem to have very small effects. Are the fitness people and bodybuilders getting a real taste of what reality is like? Does their political view of libertarianism derive from that or conservatism or libertarianism? Does it impose itself well upon other parts of society that are not fitness? Well, that's not for me to speculate. I could speculate it at insane length. I'm gonna speculate sure. that getting jacked is slightly less difficult than, you know, breaking the cycle of generational poverty and all that kind of stuff. I think we could go down an enormous rabbit hole in that. I would challenge many of your assumptions and we wow. could come to a share. Uh, but I'm, and I'm not saying that you're wrong. No. I'm saying that we'd have to actually peel back what, what, is, what is intergenerational poverty exactly? What is the cyclical nature of it? What are the causative factors? What are the effectors? Hmm. How many actual loops are there in there versus just one sort of lurking variable that explains all the variants? Neither here nor there, but I will say, I think that bodybuilders' observation of the fact that like, Willpower and genetics takes you really far at mm -hmm. least, and people who are not libertarians, especially people on the political left, tend to think those things are way overrated. Mm -hmm. If you take a bodybuilder and you say, hey, read this uh, you know, blog post by someone on the political left and see if it sinks in for you, a lot of them will read it and be like, this is just straight up bullshit. And what they mean by that is, this is nothing remotely like what I experienced in my daily life. Are they correct about that? Maybe not. Bodybuilders and very poor political philosophers, using your lived experience in one tiny fraction of the way the society functions mm -hmm. is a very poor proxy for how the rest of it works. And they're not the only ones. People who on the political left 
have a bunch of different colored hair and just have a lot of feelings are also very bad at proxying how the rest of the society works. And I think it's two different extremes and they just land to where they have what I think what's called like mood affiliation. Like they just feel like this is, this is correct. I feel in my heart that this is the way to go. And I honestly think most people end up at their politics mostly by feeling yes, their emotion, way through it. Emotionally driven tribal allegiances probably explain where most people are yes. wherever they are yes. on that spectrum. Yes, and, and not even uh, definitely tribal allegiance, but also emotionally driven desire to see the world in a certain way. Right. Like if you told someone, hey, listen, you know, the, the greedy fat cats, the capitalists, they're actually better people. They're just better than you at everything and they deserve everything. I mean, fuck. I'm one of these people that actually probably thinks that to a high percentage, and it makes me sick to think of that. <laughs> and if you're like, you know, it's just a gross thought to have. And so if you're into having thoughts that are not gross and into having thoughts that are like, you know, I want to see the world in a way that I think is just fucking more just then you, whatever your concept of internal justice is, I think you're gonna just go for that political party or affiliation without doing a whole lot of red teaming to your thoughts as well. Does the actual rest of the world look like this? Does this best explain the variance we see? Most people don't ever do that work and it's boring. Who the hell wants to read economics anyway? I can't even read. <laughs> True story. Really? No, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? I get a PhD without being able to read. Uh, people have done it. Yeah, oh, god damn it. Well, yeah. I'm not that impressive. No, no, just people, people with like people with like serious sensory processing issues, you know, like. like uh, I'm not Helen Keller. Uh, I am one tenth of a human being that she was. If I couldn't read, I would for sure just give up. Doctor Mike, it's it's been real. I have I've enjoyed I've enjoyed our time together. I mean, this part more than the part when you were hurting me, but. <laughs> if I had to rank the parts, the parts where you hurt me was the lowest. Yes, rank. exactly. I liked the part where I hurt you but that's for me and my demons to solve. Uh, thank you so much for the chat. It was honestly wonderful. And um, I am supremely impressed with your, uh, gee, kind of holistic knowledge of a bunch of different subjects and your profound knowledge of the bodybuilding space and even the bodybuilding fan space, talking about muscle maturity and all that stuff. Uh, most of the interviews that I get to be a part of are not nearly as insightful as this. And, and for that, I'm grateful. It's only because I watch way too much YouTube. I have that problem as well. I know. I just watch myself. Well, I, I, I watch you too. Um, but I, you know, as honestly, it's like, you know, because when I was trying to like learn how to work out, I went on YouTube and like there was, there was like Scott Herman and like, yes. and Jay Cutler. Yes. Oh, both Massachusetts boys come to think of it. Both Central Mass, like. That's, that's the place to be. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly not the Detroit metropolitan area in which oh, yeah. we currently are. Yeah. Don't come here. This is like, I, I, so I have this like weird addiction to like sad places. Like I love <laughs> this is the best endorsement. I ever. love pathos. Like pathos is my favorite emotion, and just like once proud places laid low, <laughs> is like my favorite place to be. There's, this is paradise. I know. You should I go know. to Cleveland next, oh. and Indiana after that. Yeah, my yeah. God. I got family in Cleveland, and I lived in Indiana for a long time. Uh, <laughs> I, I love it. I absolutely love it. It's. I mean. I mean. I. It's a very gym-like attitude that says that like character is built through pain. Sure. Right? Yes. And uh, yes, there's lots of pain around of pain here. here. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's it. <laughs> and whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Hypothetically. That is what the research literature says conclusively. It can also maim you indefinitely. <laughs> that's the one they don't talk about much. You're the best, Dr. Mike. Thank you much. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, be well. Make good choices. Talk to you next time.